Indeed, that is what the scriptures are about, the old rugged cross. They all point to the cross. Please find your way in God's word to Mark chapter 9 as we continue walking through the text. Understanding God's plan. God's plan from the beginning was the old rugged cross. Not taking him by surprise, despised by many. But if you understand the cross, if you understand God's plan, what a wonderful hymn to sing. What a wonderful hymn. Because of our study of this letter, you should always remember the reason for Mark writing it. He is declaring to the people in that time and to us what Jesus declared. That Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God, as we have seen. He brought to the world the new covenant, a new covenant that is in his blood. He is sharing God's plan with all of us. But the people did not really understand the change that was coming at that time. For thousands of years, they have been under the old covenant. For thousands of years, they performed daily sacrifices of animals. But they missed the purpose of doing it. For doing it. The purpose was to remind the people of their sin and their need for a savior. The daily sacrifices never provided salvation. It, it never provided forgiveness of sins. The word tells us in Hebrews 10:4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's why we needed a new covenant. You see, under the new covenant, Hebrews 10:10, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of animals. No, that's not what it says. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all, meaning there is no need for animal sacrifices anymore. Hebrews 10:18, where sins and lawless acts have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Our sins have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus. He put an end to the daily sacrifices. And that's why the Jewish people uh, uh, have not had a temple nor sacrificed any animals since uh, 70 AD. We'll see that in our text. It's no longer necessary. Jesus came to this earth, he brought the kingdom of God, and he started proclaiming the truth, and he began making necessary changes. And the religious leaders did not like it. As a matter of fact, they hated it. They hated the change that was coming. You see, the people were so set in their ways of, of uh, checking a box, or, or being religious, or just coming to church on Sunday. I had to throw that in there. They could not see that the changes that Jesus was making were good or that they were from God. You see, the old covenant was a set of external regulations that the people were to apply until the time of the new order, Hebrews 9.10. The, the old covenant was good for a time. It, it came from God. Don't forget that. But now is the time for a new order. The new order came with Jesus' death and resurrection. At that time, the external regulations gave way to an internal change of the heart, Galatians 6.15. The old covenant was fulfilled in Christ. 
the law was only a shadow of the good things to come. And we know that, that this new covenant was sealed in the blood of Jesus. It was sealed with the blood of Jesus. And that was a difficult part that the people, that, that the disciples uh, could not understand. A Savior dying on an old rugged cross. They could not comprehend that. Think about this for a second. Then, you know, maybe put yourself back in that time or put yourself in the Jewish man's shoes for a minute. As a people group, they had received the external regulations from God himself. So if you ask him, why do you do this? God told me to, and they wouldn't be wrong. They were doing exactly what God had told them to do. It was God who had made a covenant with his people. And to show that they were in a covenant with God, the Jewish people and their religious leaders lived by all of these external regulations for thousands of years, which isn't bad in itself, but they missed the purpose. The one purpose of the old covenant was to make it absolutely clear that no man is righteous before God. No one can save himself, Romans 3, 10 through 11 and 20. They missed it. Because God's people were stuck. They were stuck in the old covenant, relying on a sacrificial system, relying on bulls of, uh, of blood of bulls and goats instead of looking for the Savior that God had promised from the beginning. They missed when the time, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. When the Son of God died on the cross, God canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness and, we, and which stood against us and condemned us. He took all that away, nailing it to the cross, which was so offensive. The cross is offensive and a stumbling block to many. You see, the ultimate purpose of the old covenant was to point to Christ. The law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. We no longer are under the guardian in Galatians 3.24. And that's what the people could not understand. They didn't get it. They could not understand that they would no longer be under the old covenant that God had made with them. Quick note here. Be aware. Be very aware. Many false teachers today call on people to, to keep the law, you know, or, or at least part of it. And they will say, well, you know, it means that it's a way to please God, which is deceiving because, you know, it ends up being a way that you could keep your salvation or a way of proving your salvation. That's called legalism. Flee from that. Be aware of that as Christians. We must stand firm in the grace that God has given us and reject any legalism. Remember, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through what? The law? No, not at all. Through faith, Galatians 3.26. Through faith, not the law. Do not give an ear to legalism. Now, we have to know this too, that you know, God made the old covenant, and only God has the power to make a new covenant. Only God could do that. So here comes Jesus on the scene, as we're putting all this together. Here comes Jesus on the scene in the fullness of time, 
and he performs miraculous acts. He performs miracles that only God can do. And he does these miracles to what? To prove who he was. To prove that he was indeed the Son of God. And to prove and to make known to the people that he has the authority to make a new covenant with the people. Now, as we have seen, many of these miracles were done with a second purpose in mind also. The miracles that Jesus performed, what should they have done? They should have sent the people back to the scriptures. The scriptures that they had. When they, see, when they saw Jesus do these miracles, it should have drove them to the word. They should have searched the scriptures that they had to see if Jesus was who he claimed to be. To see if Jesus had this authority to make this new covenant. And if they had, they would have clearly seen that Jesus was the one that God had promised. And if he was the one, then they should have listened to his message. Listened to him. So Jesus proved who he was through the miracles and his teaching. And with his resurrection, he proved he was the son of God and that he had the authority to make a new covenant. Again, I say, th this is a difficult message for, th for them to understand. It's a difficult message for many people to understand today, to be honest. It was a difficult message for the Jewish people to comprehend. But listen, even his own disciples who had been with him for several years, they had trouble, right? Even his own disciples who had been witnesses of all the miracles had trouble fully understanding what the plan was. God's plan was not man's plan. God's way is not man's way. You know, that, that's something we should always keep on our minds as we walk on this earth, right? As we journey through this land. We must always ask, what would Jesus do? Or we must know what Jesus would do because we have hidden his word in our hearts. And, you know, and as we do this, as you line it up with God's way as we walk on this earth many many times I say many times we will see that what the world says to do does not line up with what God tells us to do even when we don't understand just like the disciples even when we don't understand we must always do what the word says to do we must choose God's way not man's way at any time amen not always easy, but it's the right way. God's way is the right way, not man's way. Keep that in mind. Do you remember what Pastor Ryan taught uh, in chapter 8 a couple weeks ago? Do you remember when uh, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say I am? What was Peter's response? You are the Christ, right? He said, you are the son of the living God. So Peter finally, at the, you know, we're halfway through the gospel, finally gets it. You know, this is the first time in this gospel that someone other than a demon professes who Jesus is. He's the Christ, the son of the living God, proclaims Peter. So Peter was finally, or, or, or got this part, he understood who the man was. But, he, but they had trouble, and he had, the other disciples had trouble understanding the plan that Jesus proclaimed. So Jesus, as we saw, the great teacher that he is, very clearly, or as verse 32 in chapter 8 says, 
plainly told them. Look back at uh, chapter 8, verse 31, right quick. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. He clearly lays out the plan. And Peter takes him aside to correct his plan. Peter, the not all-knowing man, knew that the plan that Jesus has come up with was not the right way for a king. It was, it was not the right way for the son of the living God, the, the savior of the world to be treated. Peter had another plan, man's plan. Peter believed that Jesus would not have to die. That's not the way to do it. Jesus' plan was a bad one, Peter says. Peter was not going to let this plan be carried out. But Jesus did what? He strongly rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You see, Peter understood the man, but he had trouble understanding the plan. His eyes were only partially open to the truth. He could not see the full picture yet. Just like the blind man at Bethesda that Pastor Ryan taught on last week. They could not clearly see God's plan. And that brings us to chapter 9. Jesus has brought the kingdom at hand. He's making changes. The people are starting to understand who he is. But not quite sure about the plan, even though Jesus plainly stated what the plan is. Chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of heaven, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does, not, does come first to restore all things. And, it, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they do, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So let's start back in verse 1, which I believe is tied to chapter 8. He says to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here 
who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So there are several interpretations have been suggested for the meaning of the kingdom that has come with power, that it will come with power. As we can see, Jesus is all about the kingdom of God for sure. That, that's what he's proclaiming. But something is different here in this text. Now we all know that Jesus has already declared that the kingdom is hand, that he has brought the kingdom of God to this earth. So what is he talking about when he says they will see the kingdom of God come with power, that they will see it? Some say that it's the transfiguration that we just read about, that the disciples saw the power of the kingdom on the mountaintop. Well, I, I don't agree with that one because why would Jesus talk about the ones who heard him speak dying if the transfiguration was only six days away? You know, that means a, several people would have to die just six days away. That, 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 does, that doesn't work for me. Others say that it's the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And yes, there is power there. We do see Christ conquering death, but, but that's not the kingdom coming with power. Some say that he's talking, of, that he's talking about the second coming of Christ, that he's, he's going to bring the kingdom to earth with power at that time. Well, the problem is the ones who had heard him speak that day are all dead now. So there's not some that are alive. Many say that it was the, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And it was the spread of Christianity by the early church. And, and we do see the, the kingdom of God growing at that time. We, we see the gospel beginning to go to the ends of the earth by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I believe there's a little bit more here. I believe that Jesus is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome in 70 A.D. I believe Jesus is speaking of the destruction of the temple. I believe Jesus is telling about the destruction of the Jewish religious organization. Judaism had become an enemy of the kingdom of God. It stood in the way of the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed. Judaism had become a political organization. Think about this for a moment. When Jesus was teaching on the kingdom of God, remember what he taught? He taught that he was now the Sabbath rest for all. There was not a day as they had been doing. Big changes. Jesus went on to teach that the dietary laws were no longer needed because it was not what, man, what went into a man that defiles him but what comes out of the heart, big changes. He taught that it was not the circumcision of the body, but a circumcision of the heart that is needed, something they didn't understand. You see, Jesus was undermining the traditions of men, of man, because, of the, because of the traditions, man could not see the real problem. Remember what Jesus taught? The real problem is what? Sin. It's the heart that needed to be dealt with. And they were missing that point and had been for years. So do you remember what happened or what the religious leaders did when they heard this teaching? What was the first thing they did? They went outside and they began to plot on how to kill Jesus. Let's kill him. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, 
the scribes, the organization, the people who followed him, wanted to follow them, who followed them, wanted to kill Jesus. They had become enemies of the kingdom. They wanted to kill the message of the kingdom of God. Basically, they want to put an end to his teaching and to stop the spreading of his message. That's what they wanted. That's an enemy of the gospel. That's an enemy of the kingdom. What was Jesus teaching? What did they want to stop? He was teaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What a terrible message to preach. What a hateful message. Here's salvation, and they hated it? Jesus says, listen, people, here is the plan of salvation. I'm going to die for you so that you can have eternal life. And they said, kill him, crucify him. Hear a message like that. They had become enemies of the kingdom of God the sacrificial system, the religious system was an enemy of the kingdom and God, and of God, the kingdom of God. And that's why some would see, some would see the kingdom coming in power when the temple was destroyed, when Jerusalem was destroyed. The kingdom came in power and thus restored the kingdom among the people. The kingdom came with power by taking out the opposition of the truth and by taking out the idolatry of the Gentile world in one sweeping act of God. It's not, the, it's not religion that saves the soul, right? It's Jesus. It, it's not worshiping idols that saves the soul. It's Jesus. There's no other way in which one can be saved, but by what? The blood of Jesus. Not good works. Not trying to please God because we can't. Not a sacrificial system because God says blood of bulls and goats does not provide forgiveness. It's nothing but the blood of Jesus that has the power to save and has the power to make a new covenant with the people. And we know this, and we could see this, that the kingdom has come because of the million believers around the world. There is proof in the power of the kingdom. Amen? The kingdom of God is at hand, and we should take note of the teaching of the one who brought it. One more note on the temple before we move. The temple... That building, that magnificent building, no longer needed. Destroyed in 70 AD. The building is not needed. But listen, there is still a temple. John chapter 2, Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And when Jesus said that, no one had a clue what he was talking about. But after Jesus was raised from the dead, John says, the disciples remembered his words. They believed the scripture and the words Jesus had, had spoken. They knew he was talking about his body. 
not that building. The point I'm making is, is that under the terms of the old covenant, in the old covenant, the temple was a great meeting place between a holy God and sinful people. This was the place of sacrifice, the place of atonement for sin. But on this side of the old rugged cross, on this side of the cross, Jesus himself becomes the great meeting place between a holy God and his sinful people. Thus, he becomes the temple. Jesus is the meeting place between God and his people. We no longer need a building. It is in Jesus' death, in his destruction, and in his resurrection three days later that Jesus meets our needs and reconciles us to God, becoming the temple, the supreme meeting place between God and sinners. We no longer need a building. Jesus is our high priest, and we go to him, and we enter the holy of holies through Jesus Christ himself. Amen? So, let's take a look at the transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Do you know what the six days stand for? No, really, I was asking because I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I searched everything I could find. I really don't know what six days stand for, so I was hoping one of you guys did. But anyways, after six days, <laughs> after the six days, after the six days after Jesus made his prediction about the kingdom, he takes Peter and James and John up on a high mountain. And the word says that he was transfigured. Now, the word transfigured describes a change on the outside that comes from the inside. So th this word is the opposite of, of masquerade, which is an outward change that does not come from within. You tracking with me there? So transfigured describes a change on the in, uh, change on the outside that comes from the inside, but masquerade is an outside change that does not come from within. So Jesus allowed his glory from the inside to radiate through his whole being where it could be visible. And I thought, you know what? We need, that's a good heart check there. That's a good heart check when we examine ourselves. Are we masquerading as a Christian? Or are we transformed by Christ? Are we transfigured? Does what we do, does what we do come from the spirit that lives in us? Or are we just putting on a show? Good self-examination question. But in his glory... God's glory was so powerful that the text says that his clothes, be, his clothes, just earthly's clothes became radiant, intensely white, that, that no one on earth could bleach them like that. Think about that for a moment. His glory is so powerful that his clothes became radiant. You know, Mark wants us to know just how remarkable this is. He wanted us to know that, that it's not anything man could do. This didn't come from man. No one on earth could have bleached him this white, he throws in there. It, it, it was actually indescribable. 
He says, radiant, intensely white. Nothing on earth could bleach that white. What he's trying to say that the white was not of this earth. It, it was a white that no human had seen. It, it, it gave us a glimpse of the supreme glory of the purity and holiness of God. I can't help to think that, you know, when we get to heaven and we see Jesus in his full glory, this verse is going to be ringing in our head. Now, that's white. You know, Mark was right. That's like a white I have never seen. It is going to be amazing. This text is going to be ringing in our ears. This miracle, and it was a miracle, this is an indescribable miracle. This is probably the greatest miracle that Jesus did. Jesus revealed his glory, his purity, his holiness here on this earth. Had to be the greatest miracle that he ever did. If you were to read books on the miracles of Jesus, this one probably wouldn't be there, though. You'd read about giving sight, raising Lazarus from the dead, feeding 10,000. But the greatest miracle, God revealing his glory to man, probably not on there. I thought about this, too. With Jesus revealing his glory, and then the Shekinah glory of God coming down on that mountaintop all at one time. I couldn't help but think about God just turned that mountaintop into the holy of holies. Do you see it? That's God's presence right on that mountaintop that day. Truly amazing, indescribable miracle. And it was enough to wake the disciples up again. Did you know they were asleep? Listen to the account of Luke this time. 828. Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and went up to the mountaintop to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Listen. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But they became fully awake. They saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. These guys were sleeping again. Absolutely unbelievable, isn't it? We'll see these guys having a slumber party later on as we go through the book of Mark. But I'm thinking, if I'm one of those guys, I wouldn't go to sleep unless Jesus went to sleep. I'd be afraid I was going to miss something spectacular, you know, like revealing his glory. I wouldn't want to miss that. I would not want to miss something amazing. But these guys wake up, and they see two men with Jesus. It's Moses and Elijah. Now, Moses and Elijah were considered the, the, considered the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament. They were the two primary figures associated with the Messiah. Moses was the, the, uh, was the predictor and Elijah was the precursor. Both of these men received special appearances of God. Moses represented the law or the old covenant. He had written the Pentateuch and he had predicted the coming, listen, of a great prophet, a greater prophet. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. 
Elijah represented the prophets who had foretold the coming of the Messiah. Malachi 4, 5 through 6. So Moses and Elijah's presence with Jesus confirmed, confirmed Jesus' messianic mission to fulfill God's law and the words of God's prophet. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but what? To fulfill them. So Moses and Elijah's presence with Jesus confirms Jesus' messianic mission to fulfill God's law and the words of God's prophets. Jesus is the one. He is the greater prophet that Moses speaks of. Deuteronomy 18.15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him, listen to what he says, it is him you shall listen. Moses was a great prophet, but Jesus was the truer and greater prophet. And just like Moses had said way back then, and God confirmed that day on the mountain, listen to verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. He said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The same thing that Moses prophesied about. The great prophet. Listen to him. This is the one. Jesus is the son of God whom we are to listen to. And, and you know, when, G, when the, the cloud comes down and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him, what was, what, what was Jesus talking about on the mountain? What was he talking to Elijah and Moses? What were they talking about? Well, we just read it in Luke 9. What did it say? And behold, the two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. What were they speaking of? And spoke of his departure. They spoke of his death which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They were talking about the death of Jesus on that mount that day. They were talking about God's plan. They were talking about how Christ would be put to death in Jerusalem. They were talking about the cross. The cross is the theme of heaven's conversation and heaven's praise. This was a plan that Jesus had been proclaiming to the people that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. This is the plan. This is God's plan. And after three days, he would rise again. This is the plan of salvation. So the disciples hear it. They see the cloud come down. God's telling them to listen to what, they, what, it, what he is saying. And they still don't get it. They still don't get it. What's Peter's response? What's Peter's response to seeing all this? Verse 5, Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. You know, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I'm sure they were. We would have been. You're standing in the glory of God, and you just saw a cloud come down, and God speaks from that cloud. I think there's a lot more words than terrified that I could use to describe myself at that time. 
But Peter was so afraid, he did not know what to say. He just blurts out the first thing that comes to mind. He's thinking about, you know, the, the Feast of Booths is happening down in town. You know, he's like, hey, let's just make, let's have the feast right here. Let's do it right here. There's a life lesson there. If you don't know what to say, don't say anything. <laughs> keep your mouth shut. That will keep you from catching that foot and mouth disease that Peter had. But listen, we, we can't be too hard on Peter here. We, we really can't. I mean, he's looking at one of the most miraculous things anyone could ever see. I'm not sure what would have come out of my mouth. Probably a bunch of stumbling around just like Peter did. But here again, we see that man's way is not God's way. Human thinking is not divine wisdom. Peter's thinking, hey, we'll set up booths right here on the mountain for everyone, and we'll just bask in the glory of God right here. We'll stay right here on this mountaintop in the glory of God. Not a bad thing. That's where we all want to be, right? We all want to stay on the mountaintop. Peter is thinking like a man. He does not see that the glory comes when? After the cross. We just can't go directly to the mountaintop and bask in the glory of God. In order to get there, we have to go to the cross first. That's God's plan. And it's always been God's plan. And I believe that's why God interrupts Peter's speech. <laughs> Peter's babbling, the cloud comes down, and God says, listen to him. This is my son. Listen to him. Jesus and Moses and Elijah are talking about how Jesus is going to die. They are talking about the plan of salvation. They are talking about the cross. Listen to him, Peter. Listen to him, people. Listen to the words of Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. That is how it works. Amen? Verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves questioning, listen, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean. So Jesus tells them not to tell anyone what they had seen. And I think this is the first time they actually did what Jesus told them to do. They kept it to themselves. But they didn't understand the plan. They still didn't understand the plan. They were questioning what was the raising from the dead. They have a clearer view of who the man is, but not the plan. You know, as I studied this text, something came to mind. As, as we walk through these texts, something stands out. And we've repeated it several times. The disciples didn't believe. They didn't understand. It took them a, it took them a while. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, the disciples certainly were not easily convinced that Jesus was the Son of God. 
That's not a bad thing. It took a while to convince them of this. Some, some, some may be reading the text and going, man, what's wrong with those guys? Why didn't they get it? You know? How did they not understand this? Why didn't they accept that truth? It tells me that these men were not just some simple-minded men who were blown about by just any teaching. It took a lot for them to see who the man was and even more to understand what the plan was. But that's why Peter wrote this in 2 Peter 1.18. Write that verse in your margins right here. Listen to what Peter says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were, not with him, for we were with him on the, on the holy mountain. And we have seen the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well. Listen, you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own in interpretation. For no prophecy has ever was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were not easily convinced, but when he understood the truth, they proclaimed it. Jesus brought these three men to this mountaintop for that very reason right there, knowing that one day they would be the rock of the church, knowing one day that they would be proclaiming the plan, God's plan for salvation. Jesus, the ultimate rabbi, was training up his disciples on that mountain. He was preparing them for the days to come. And so as we come to this pinnacle in the letter of Mark. As we come to this mountaintop on, in this letter, we see that Jesus is continually telling his disciples of his death and suffering that he was to endure. And he reaffirmed it that day on that mountain. He gave them a glimpse of his glory so that they would understand that his death and sufferings were voluntary. He was not going to bypass the cross and stay in glory on that mountain that day. He was willing to leave the glories of heaven and to give his life for a ransom for all, and he wasn't going to take a shortcut. He was going to do it God's way, God's plan. And that is a challenge he gave to his disciples. Remember what Pastor Ryan taught in chapter 8? They must be willing to take up the cross and follow him. That means, that means that they don't bask in the glory all the time. That there are valleys that they will have to go through. They can't selfishly stay on the mount of glory. You must be willing to follow him. If they want to share in the glory of Christ on the mountaintop, they must be willing to follow him into the sufferings of the valleys below. 
had to understand that there is no offense of the cross. Not when you understand what the cross is. Because we're on the other side of the cross. We see there is glory. There is glory. So after Jesus is teaching, after teaching them the, the rigors of self-denial, he gave them a reassuring glimpse of his glory on that mountain. He wanted them to know that they know who Jesus is and their mission. So to sum it up, to sum up his teaching with these guys, Jesus has spoken to the disciples about his impending death, and they did not understand, chapter 8. He assured them that whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it, and they didn't quite understand. The disciples wondered, how, what is the resurrection? How can this be true in the light of Jesus? They didn't understand. So Jesus shows them the transfiguration so they can clearly understand that they were correct in believing Jesus to be the Messiah because they did proclaim that. They were correct in believing that he is the divine son of God who was willing to die for them. They had to understand that part. And that's what God wants each and every one of us to know also. He wants us to know that Jesus is the true Messiah. He is the true Savior of the world. He is the divine Son of God who is willing to give his life for our salvation. That's the plan. That's God's plan from the beginning. And for the ones who understand this plan, for us who know the truth, who in our hearts have put their faith in Jesus, know this. Know this. If we follow after Jesus, it's not always going to be a mountaintop experience. We have to follow Jesus through the valleys also. Our walk is not one where we sit in the glory of God all the time. And the longer we're with God, the harder the walk seems to get. You know? Think about the first week you're saved. Man, I'm flying around on high, and then here comes persecution, and here comes troubles, and as we go through life, it gets tough. We will suffer. We will be persecuted. There's going to be tough times. We will go through valleys so deep that we think there is no way out. But God assures us that his plan will be carried out, that there is a way out, and that's why we get through it all, because we live in the glory to come. Amen?